the perfect closet additions feel as good as they look. And Rothy's knits style and comfort into every pair of shoes. The Rothy's signature sneaker combines game-changing comfort with a timeless style that goes perfectly with every look, from casual to elevated. And their one-of-a-kind driving loafers feel great with or without socks and come in both classic and eye-catching designs. Find out what the hype is all about. Discover your new favorite pair of shoes and get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash hype. What's that place you've always wanted to try? Well, you're there. Sharing plates with just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Well, hello there. This is Jim the Keys bartender. It is, I guess, we're, we're on our way to St. Patrick's Day. Um, we all know that, let me stop this. We all know St. Patrick's Day, along with a lot of different holidays, is one of the, I guess, hallmark days for bars. And uh, I'll be doing a couple shows on that, getting ready for that. We're in the midst of... Uh, Another peak in our tourist season here that goes through Easter. But we don't know necessarily when it's going to end. It hasn't really stopped since things started opening up here two years ago. We had some lulls for the last tourists. We are appreciative for that. Unfortunately, we don't have the workers at a lot of places down here to really service everyone completely. But... That's the way it is. And it is warm down here. It is is the mid-80s. Mid-80s. Water's nice. Uh, people are seeming to have a good time. It's a little windy out there. So that affects a lot of the on-the-water activities that go on there. People don't really consider that. They see it's a sunny day. And they, if you're not a regular a, you know, nautical person... You don't even take that into consideration. Well, what's the wind have to do anything? Aren't we going on a powerboat? It's not a sailboat. And if it's a sailboat, isn't wind good? Yeah, sailboat is wind is good. But when it's really windy, it gets choppy out there. Not so much inside the reef, but it really gets choppy. Uh, well, it gets choppy inside a reef, too, if you're on a flats boat or something like that. But once you go outside the reef, that extends a couple miles out off the Keys. Uh, it gets really, really kind of uncomfortable with the waves and things like that. And you don't really, if you're not used to it, it is not a pleasant experience. It is not. And but a lot of people, they, they seem to like it. I remember when I was uh, a much younger man, the first time I spent significant time on the water was my freshman year, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year of college. Spent five weeks on a sail training vessel for the U.S. Navy. We sailed uh, from, uh, I think it was, down in Chesapeake Bay all the way up to Maine. And uh, I used to sleep in the uh, berthing space, the most forward berthing space on that 52-foot sailboat. And... uh, I loved it. It's just the crashing of the waves. I didn't have to take any. The whole time I was on that boat, 
a sailboat. I didn't have to take any Dramamine or anything like that. There was a couple people. And it has nothing to do with your hardiness at sea, having to take Dramamine. Some people would say, oh, I'd never get seasick. Like you're tough. You can physically will yourself from not getting seasick. That is not true. It's a product of your your middle ear, whether you get seasick or not. Some You're either born to get seasick or not. I don't want to get further into the medical description of it, but it, it has nothing to do with your status of your toughness. But if you do come down here, it is good to consider what the conditions are going to be like on the water. That's your tip from me for the people that come down here. I'd like to thank all the listeners that are still listening. I'm still going to do a lot of it. I'm going to be doing a lot of shows going to be dedicated to Ukraine. And uh, if you uh, want to donate to the people of uh, Ukraine, there is... uh, And you know, I understand a lot of people anti-war and all that stuff, but uh, peace... Once, once the enemy's inside your country and shelling your country and stuff like that, saying there should be peace is all well and good. But if you don't fight back, they'll just take it over. Okay? There's not much of a choice. You see people posting peace signs and stuff like that. I would like the war to stop. I would like the Russians to leave Ukraine. But they have to fight back right now. And there are, the governments are be sending, uh, the U.S. government... Uh, aided by a new package, uh, aid package is coming out. They're going to be sending more weaponry over there. And also, we get to rather facile about how we should help them or not, but we uh, it's not cowardice not to want to get into a direct confrontation with the Russian Federation. They have 6,000 nuclear warheads. We have 5,500, uh, even though ours are more advanced than theirs. Uh, it's, it doesn't matter that they have 500 more. Matter of fact, China only has, what, three to 500. North Korea has maybe 20. Same as Israel. And between England and, and France, there may be another 500. Well, you know, just a couple nuclear weapons will change the, the whole atmosphere of the earth exploded into it. So you don't want to come into a direct confrontation. That's the reason why during the Cold War, they called it the Cold War post-World War II to 1991 when the Cold War, um, I'm going to do the quote, supposedly ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. But the reason why we didn't come into direct uh, contact with the Soviets or that direct contact when it occurred accidentally or on purpose didn't become and didn't escalate because they worried about nuclear war. And that's what Putin's throwing out there all the time. He says, well, this is a direct war. This is a direct war. And trust me, when someone starts losing, if they're going to lose their position and uh, status, you know, they quickly become, if they become the losers in a war, they will maybe seek an alternate resolution using the worst, most extreme things. So when you su- suggest, like, for Poland, Poland uh, was going to give about uh, approximately 30 of its Soviet-era 
fighter planes to the Ukrainians. But in order to do so, Ukraine, um, Poland didn't want to have Ukrainian pilots come to Poland. And I, I understand. They wanted to transfer the, the jets to Ramstein Air Base. In, it's an allied NATO air base, U.S.-controlled one, in Germany. And then the Ukrainians or Americans, or whatever, Ukrainians could fly them out. I understand directly why they would the Poles would want to do that instead of transferring directly to the Ukrainians, because this way they would be supplying uh, real serious weaponry to combatants in this Russian war of uh, conquest. So they what they wanted to do was transfer the jets to the Americans and Americans do it. But that's still, considering people don't really understand, it doesn't really matter if they had agreed on it either way and the Russians took offense to it and they responded either by attacking Ramstein Air Base or a point in Poland, there is a clause in the NATO charter that if there's an attack, it would be attack on all. So it doesn't matter if it was Poland or the U.S. air base in Germany. So the U.S. at this time nixed that idea because of its provocation. I, I, they, they're reluctant to go toe-to-toe with the Russians due to the nuclear question. Not that they wouldn't have the ability to uh, combat the Russians, as it seems like that you know, that's the, you know, people say, oh, they're frightened. No, they're not frightened. And they've done it through all different types of administrations where they didn't go toe to toe. They become, they come close, but then they back away. It's like two guys on the street facing each other, right? Well, that is that for that question. And you may have a different take on it. I understand. But there's weapons pouring in. They're getting a lot of resupplies, a lot of humanitarian aid. And if you'd like to contribute and you don't want to contribute directly to the Ukrainian army or the Ukrainian resistance, I would suggest a great one would be in the French organization, or it's an international organization called Médecins Sans Frontières, better known as Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders. You heard them if you're... You're an international news junkie like myself. You've heard them. They've been in, in Rwanda, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. And it's uh, originally founded by the French, but became an international organization where physicians fly into conflict areas or famine areas and donate their services. And, you know, donating directly to, um, you can you can donate directly to uh, Doctors Without Borders by uh, going to www.newyork.msf.org. MSF, you're saying Doctors Without Border, Borders, that would be w, uh, DWB or DWOB if you're without. But Medecins Sans Frontiers, meaning Doctors Without Frontiers in French. That's their official name. So you can donate to them and they'll put the money in an emergency fund. An emergency fund goes to wherever their doctors are and it aids in getting medicine and equipment to those people. And after seeing the horrible shelling 
of the Maternity and Children's Hospital in Mariupol, I think it was Mariupol, in, in the uh, Black Sea region, in the southern part of Ukraine, they, they are sorely needed, even though they probably wouldn't be able to get those items to that area since it's surrounded by Russians. But there's plenty of parts of uh, the Ukraine that are free of Russians right now. And also there's the Save the Children Foundation, and you can donate to them. They, they, that's a great organization. And you can donate directly to Ukraine because they have an option under there. So if you go to www.savethechildren.org, and I'll post those in the show notes. Okay, so you have them. And uh, just, I realize, you know, it's so bad that we ignore there was crises in Syria. The Russians were acting poorly in Syria. They used chemical weapons in Syria. They used their uh, fuel-air mixture bombs that are big uh, bombs that release gas. And then once the flammable gas is released, they ignite it, and that causes a, a really horrific um, widespread damage because when you when you have a large amount of flammable liquid and you send it out and then when you explode it it sucks all the air in and it's it's excellent at killing people and I hate to use the word excellent but it's very efficient at killing people so that is that part of the show that I'm talking about right now I'm going to be talking directly about what happens? You run into people here, uh, especially in the Keys, but in a lot of places in the United States and around the world. Uh, Russians are not unlike uh, Americans that there's a lot of expatriates out there, meaning they live all. There's a lot of Russian students, a lot of people, Russians that work in the United States and things like that. And a lot of people of, because we are a multicultural society in the United States, a lot of people of Russian descent. And it really touched home, Tay, because I was at my other job at the hospital, do, you know, working out. Oh, actually, I wasn't really working there. I was just working out. But I had to do some testing. Every couple months, we have to do a, a required uh, life-saving uh, uh, um, CPR classes. That we do an automated one. You go into the section of the hospital and they got two mannequins, a baby mannequin and an adult mannequin, and they do a refresher course every three months. I think it's a great idea because it makes you more comfortable instead of waiting one year or two years and renewing your uh, CPR credentials. So I was finishing up there. I went back to the, uh, I was coming downstairs where there's this lovely volunteer there, my friend at the front door at the wellness center part of the you know the wellness center the gyms inside the wellness center and the wellness center is part of the hospital campus that I work at and we started talking and she said that her uh, she always tells me that her son listens to the show and all this stuff and then she mentioned she goes I didn't want to say anything because I'm a Russian ancestry and I said well I don't have a problem with Russians why would I have a problem with Russians? I have a problem with the Russian leadership right now. 
the people that are directing the, uh, the war in Ukraine. That's my only issue right now. I don't have uh, my only issue. Oh, no, I have other issues. We all know that. But, I mean, can you condemn? I mean, there was a lot of... During World War II, let's go back to World War II. Or World War I. I can tell you a personal history of my, my family. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, grew up in a small... A small farming village in western Pennsylvania near Punxsutawney. And Punxsutawney is where they do the official U.S. Groundhog's Day thing where they wait for the groundhog to come out and do all that stuff. Well, she grew up there. And until she was approximately eight or nine years old, she only spoke a German dialect. She not speak English. She was born in... Uh, 1908, if I'm not correct. Yeah, 1908. And in 1914, World War I broke out. So she was six years old. And for the first two years of the Great War, they called it at that time, America was not pro, predominantly pro British or pro-German. My grandmother's family came over from Germany in the 1700s. And they were over so long that she didn't even realize they were German. She didn't even realize they were German until she was a little older. Because when she was six years old, things started changing. Meaning, when the Germans became becoming more and more portrayed as the aggressors in World War I, because the British were much more skilled at, uh, let's say, moving, showing the propaganda. And World War I was, even though the, the um, Germans and the Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire that was on one side, even though they were slightly the aggressors more, they were made out even overwhelmingly so through English propaganda. And propaganda is used all the time in the war. And some of it could be true, some of it could be false. And during World War I, the Germans became the enemy when you started rolling around 1916, 1917. And then there was sinking of a U.S. or a ship with a lot of U.S. citizens on the Lusitania. Uh, there may or may not have been arm, an arm shipment going over on a passenger ship, which would have violated the Neutrality Act at the time. Now, the U.S., the largest, after people of English ancestries in the United States in 1914, 15, 16, the second largest ethnic uh, group of ethnic ancestry in the United States was German. So there was a lot of people that would have a tendency to lean on the Germans, but they were U.S. citizens first. So my grandmother's family stopped speaking that German dialect, started using English. You still heard among the older siblings of my grandmother, and my grandmother also, a slight accent. A slight accent. I remember 
the accent they had. It was it was unusual because they were born in the same state I was, but their accents were so different. It wasn't necessarily German, but it was very strong accent when they spoke. So I know what it's like. And during World War II, it's pretty much by the time the U.S. entered World War II, the Germans were pretty much considered the worst things around then, considering the horrible things they did. And uh, their propaganda machine was going during World War II, train saying, "Listen, we're we're here to cleanse the world of Bolsheviks or communists." They didn't talk that much in their foreign propaganda, the German propaganda, about uh, wanting to exterminate the Jews, which they did. So they kept that quiet and they focused on fighting the communists, which really didn't affect the U.S. in a close personal way until um, until the bombing of Pearl Harbor by their ally, the Japanese. So it was easy. So right now, it wasn't a war. And obviously, after World War II, who's our, our biggest ally in Europe? For the longest time in Europe proper, the mainland, was Germany. And in the Far East, since World War II, we'd have to be Japan. So, obviously, at the time of war, we might have a little problem with that country. But afterwards, Americans put that thing away. I mean, the hatred for a population. Why would you hate a population? It's the leadership that takes you to war. It's the leadership of that country that does it. And... Uh, you can say that about any incursions you do disagree with the with the U.S. It wasn't the U.S. people. It was the U.S. leadership. So when I was talking to my friend, I said, listen, I don't have a, a, any problem with the Russians. It's a shame that they're only being fed in Russia proper. News by their state media. And it's still right now in Russia. They're not admitting to this invasion. They call it a special military exercise. Special military exercise. Which they're going to have to really explain in the next couple of weeks. Because there's a lot of Russian soldiers. And I don't mean this in a snide way. There are a lot of Russian soldiers that won't be coming back. They've lost about... They're suggesting they lost about 10% of their equipment and a significant amount of their personnel, whether dead or injured. So there's going to be a lot of questions for um, people will be asking when they don't contact their sons, uh, their their children that are fighting in the Russian army, which is a lot of conscripts, and these conscripts are young. They're 18, 19, and 20. And you know, a lot of their, a lot of their families are concerned about what's going on, and they're not, they're not being told anything. And it may be a significant part of the population that believe the propaganda that's being put out by Russia about denazification. There's uh, yesterday, um, oh, was it yesterday or the day before? Yesterday I worked a double. On Tuesday, at my house. My Polish nephew 
introduced Abby and I to this movie that was made about five years ago. It's a Polish movie. And it's about the ethnic strife during World War II that took place in the Ukraine under the Polish provinces in the Ukraine. After World War I, the Allies uh, reestablished the borders of a lot of the countries. And Poland, who was considered an ally against the German, uh, Poland really wasn't much of a country up until 1917, 18, because the Russians and the Germans had kind of pretty much divided that up. And there wasn't much of a Russian state for a couple hundred years. So they reestablished the Polish state. And there were areas where there was a sizable Polish populations that were incorporated into Poland. And there was question of whether that territory was Ukrainian territory that had a lot of Polish people in it, or was a Polish territory that had some Ukrainians in it. That was after World War One, And then World War Two rolls around, there was a kind of a working relationship between the Poles and Ukraines in the Galatia region, which is now part of Ukraine, that we see pictures coming out. And there was a significant Polish majority in those areas. And they it brought to head the frustrations and some of the brutality of the way they went after each other when the Soviets and the Germans simultaneously invaded Poland in September of 1939. And the Poles put up a valiant resistance for about a month. They were invaded on both sides, so it's very hard to divide your forces because you have to you have to uh, send units one direction and the other. You don't have any one particular battle you can say is the key battle. I mean, if they had only had to fight one of those enemies, they could have lasted for a very long time. They would have gave up some land, obviously, but they had to, all their forces go in one direction. But they didn't have the airlift cap- capabilities of getting equipment to the poles like the, they do nowadays. So I was watching this movie, and you see these horrible things that the um, these two groups. In, in this movie, Hatred, it was predominantly Ukrainians that were committing atrocities against the Poles. But the Poles, they actually show in the movie that some of these Polish partisans were committing atrocities against Ukrainians. And both of them were kind of, let's say, laissez-faire in their attitude and protecting. I, I shouldn't say it. They, were, they sold out the Jews. So in this movie, in the beginning, you see Jewish, Polish, you know, it's a wedding. And you have Jewish people and Polish people and Ukrainian people living in a community. A Pole is marrying, I think it was a, a Ukrainian guy was marrying a Polish girl. And he was going to the Jewish merchant to buy vodka. And he gave him a special rate for it and stuff like that. And there were plenty of these, plenty of these people. I'm sure they were good neighbors at the time. They were good neighbors. But... The brutality of war is amazing. It's amazing. When I say it's amazing, not a good thing. It's amazing. It's shocking that people would do certain things. And I know they depicted things um, in in the movie that I I know happens. 
but you rarely get to see. So, you can always go back in history to a time when certain groups of people didn't behave well. God, the way uh, the U.S. federal government behaved against the American Indians in the West, breaking every treaty. I know I mentioned that before. But nowadays, it's the 21st century. It is the 21st century. And even though I saw that movie about the horrible things that Ukrainians did to the Poles and the Poles did to the Ukrainians, and, then, and, and the Czechs did against the Germans after World War II, when the Germans were beaten out, and then the, the, you know, the Czech Republic, there were some very brutal things they were doing. And, and yes, some people, you could say that was karma. That's the way it came out. They should have not uh, allowed their leaders to do that, and they shouldn't have listened to their leaders. Yes, it's well, well and good, but it's history. It's having a path. Nowadays, we have to deal with today. So when Russia betrays the Poles as, or not the Poles, the Ukrainians as nationalists, it's, when you live in a place that's somewhat indefensible, I mean, it's flat, there's no big mountains like Switzerland or an ocean to protect them like the United States and Canada. You know, Europe was always the place you can get from here to there, cross a couple rivers and things like that, a couple bridges, and there you are. So you always had these movements of people, so the ethnic groups were kind of intermixed. Uh, there were forced conversions during the Middle Ages and the Inquisition and stuff like that. So Jewish people were forced to convert to Catholicism. And then you had the Protestant Revolution or Reformation that came about. So all, all this stuff would happen. There were, there were pools of German populations in Russia from the 1500s, 1600s, German merchants and stuff like that. So you can talk about ethnicity and things like that, but when people build a country, especially nowadays when you have an authoritarian regime such as, such as Russia, and see what they're doing to that. See what Putin is doing to his population, closing down all the independent news sources, um, and uh, all the things he would do, all the things he does, and and giving you know misdirecting the information, meaning to say that the invasion, which we pretty much most people in the United States, I'd say ninety percent of the people in the United States believe that if that Russia is the aggressor. And then there's probably a couple percentage of that 90% that says, well, it's preemptive aggression. Preemptive aggression, meaning they're doing it to keep them from the Ukrainians attacking them or attacking Russian language speakers or Ukraine is part of Russia. I mean, if you really want to do all those things and go fall back on the previous ownership of something, there'd be a lot of people's houses that would be in question. Uh, there's real estate in the United States and Mexico. I mean, that belongs to Mexico. If you go back far enough. Or the Incan or Native American peoples. If prior ownership was a basis for law, then we'd have no leg to stand on, really. And I do apologize for anybody of Russian ancestry. 
I'm not looking to paint a group of people as being brutal. Because there are brutal people of every ethnic makeup. And they seem, what happens is certain brutal people find their homes at the places where they can manifest their most brutal traits. So if you were someone that liked to torture and liked killing, you may gravitate you know, wholeheartedly to join in a military incursion. So you can get the opportunity to practice your, 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 I hate to call it a vocation, but an avocation. If that's what you like doing. And then some people in the middle, they let them, they let them practice. We all know these stories about different, the, the German armies. There was the SS troops that were brutal, killed civilians. Horrible. Killed Jews, gypsies, gays, everyone. Which is practicing brutality. And there were other Germans that were just soldiers. And people just say, oh, I was just a soldier. I didn't know that and stuff like that. Well, I mean, that's another responsibility. But there's some people that take certain glee in doing the most horrible things to their fellow human being. And when someone has the upper hand of doing it, upper hand, such as an invading force, they're the ones that get charged with war crimes at the end. And I think necessarily tossing about the thing about war crimes, that doesn't give much of a off-ramp to Putin right now. Saying, listen, you could pull out right now, or you could lose. But if, when this is over, we're going to try to bring about charges in the International Criminal Court of The Hague against you. So what incentive is there for him to back off? Maybe none. They just got to be able to give an offer him. And they can't, they got to be careful about pressing that drumbeat for war crimes and stuff like that because the more they do, the more they, the more they t- press that drumbeat. I have a feeling, like I said uh, a week and a half ago, the Russians will not succeed. They're, they will probably win some short-term goals, garner new territory in the south. They're going to have a bloody battle in the north with Kiev. They're not going to make it far into the west. I don't think they're going to make it far in western Ukraine because of the extra... Uh, where they're bleeding weapons, they have to manufacture their own because I don't think there's anybody sending them weapons. I don't think the Chinese will send them weapons. The Chinese probably will um, say they're, you know, give private uh, assurances to the Russian that they support them. But also China has to deal with the rest of the world when it comes to the economy and their economy is uh, very, very closely tied to the rest of the world, the import and export structure. And they can't have that. So they got to be able to play it nice enough with the rest of the world so they don't piss them off. And they can't have like Chinese weapons showing up in Ukraine. And I have a feeling the best that the Russia has 
is being spent in the Ukraine and what's going to be left over is going to be the shit from the Soviet Empire. Their military are going to be a bunch of old jet. Once they keep on shooting down these jets, they'll have more cruise missiles probably and more rockets and maybe some artillery shells. But they're going to start using their frontline tanks and things like that. And they're really hard to replace on the, you know, it's not, it's not like World War II where the people, U.S. was cranking 10,000 fighter planes a month at one time at the highest production rate. So, if you bring anything uh, out of this whole thing, is you can't paint a whole population as evil. But they are part of the, the war-making capability of the leader of that country. And in order to probably break that, and then we have some friends are saying you shouldn't punish the Russian people for that, but if the Russians don't feel the effects of their war. They'll just hear what Putin wants them to hear. That's a special military incursion. And they say, well, look, see, we're doing business as usual and stuff like that. The rest of the world, they're, they're just making this stuff up. It's no big deal and stuff. Like, you know. But once they see it and they say, well, there's something more to it because we are feeling some effects. If this was not a big, if this is just a military incursion and we're denazifying, we know that Americans aren't really big on Nazis. Unless you're talking about Donald Trump. Very fine people on both sides, if you remember that, when he talked about the Unite the Right march. So I had to throw that in. I don't know why he did. I, I, I didn't think I pissed off enough of my listeners. Uh, I'm going to be signing off now. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'll put in the post notes, uh, the show notes, where they can donate to. Okay? And until then, take care. I'll try to be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's a big day. i got to go to the airport to drop off my nephew and uh, get that all taken care of. And then I'll be back. I'll probably do a show on Saturday. If I don't do one tomorrow, I'll talk to you later. Have a great day. I almost signed off. I got I actually have to put the music on here. Though. Hey, listen, remember, keep on downloading too. Thank you. place you've always wanted to try well you're there sharing plates with just one bite or on second thought maybe not sharing it's that good when you're with amex it's not if it's going to happen but when american express don't live life without it this man has just entered the gas price madness zone pushed over the edge by skyrocketing gas prices the remedy upside the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy 
Hey, wait a minute. Did you just say there's a free app I can get that'll actually pay me cash back on every gallon of gas I buy? Yes. Escape the gas price madness zone with the Upside app and earn real cash back on every gallon of gas you buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enough of the theatrics. Just tell me more about this Upside app. Okay. It's super easy. Just download the free app and use it whenever you buy gas. Upside users can earn hundreds of dollars in cash back. Wow. Thanks, announcer guy. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code MINUTE for an extra 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first fill-up. You can cash out anytime. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code MINUTE for a 25 cents per gallon or more bonus on your first tank.